You're listening to a Cripple and Co. production. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Clonawilly.com. Clonawilly and Clonopussy are do-it-yourself molding kits that allow anyone to make an exact replica of any penis or vulva into a sex toy at home. All materials are ethically sourced and 100% body safe. If you shop at clonawilly.com right now and use the promo code DARKPOD at checkout, you can get 20% off site-wide. Wow! That's a deal that cannot be cloned. I talked to one of the representatives the other day, and they are more than willing to answer any questions you have about how to make your own clone willy or clone pussy, how to use the kit. They're so, so willing to go on this journey of cloning a willy or cloning a pussy with you, and they're super nice and super responsive to any concerns. So if you want to pick up your own clone willy or clone a pussy kit right now, head over to clonawilly.com and use promo code DARKPOD, that's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout right now. And remember, this is a deal that cannot be cloned. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. This is a podcast that looks at disability stories. It's like sitting down with a really close friend to have a real conversation about disability, sexuality, and everything else about the disability experience that we don't talk about. The things about being disabled, we keep in the dark. Here is your deliciously disabled host, disability awareness consultant, Andrew Gerza. Watching content. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends, and thank you for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. I'm, of course, your host, Andrew Gerza, just a wheelchair guy. I'm trying out a new thing. I'm trying out a new moniker. Um, I'm just a wheelchair guy doing a thing and putting stuff out about disability, and, and this show is all of those things. So I'm so happy you're here. Thank you for being here. Let us get comfy, cozy, and crippled, and get the show started, shall we? First things first, I want to remind you that you can support the show, both financially, by going to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark, 
where you can pledge as little as $1 a month or $5 a month or more if that works for your budget as well, as well as there's a yearly option if you want to do that too. You can pledge financially and you'll get the show a couple days, I want to say a couple days early because I'm trying to do that more, or one up to one day early, completely ad-free on a, the Patreon feed, and you'll get a shout-out on the air. So if you want to hear that you've supported this fully independent, fully self-run program, that's cool. Um, and I will give you a shout-out, something like this. Hey, Joe, thanks for being such a good friend there. Yo, see, it's not very good. The pun's not very good, but it'll be something like that. But in the end, if you want to support the show, not financially, you can always go wherever you get your podcasts, and you can... And you can leave us a review. Leave us a five-star review on why you like the show, how important it is, how necessary it is, all those things. Um, that's how you can support the show, and I would really appreciate it. Because I make the show from my bedroom in my house all by myself. So whatever support you give me, I really, really appreciate. Enough of my rambling on, and let's get to the show today. As promised, this episode will be a Popcorn and Power Chairs episode, which is what with the episodes of Disability After Dark, where I sit down with you and we review a piece of disability-themed media together. And I have to tell you, I watched this documentary this morning, and I'm about to watch it again before I do before before you hear after this part. I'm going to watch it again to make notes. I watched this documentary this morning, and I could not tell you how impactful this documentary was on just me as a disabled person and how necessary it was to watch this. I watched the documentary on HBO Max called David Holmes, The Boy Who Lived, which is the story of Daniel Radcliffe's stunt double on the Harry, on the Harry Potter films who had an accident on set that left him paralyzed. And it's a whole story about his life and about his life with paralysis and his friendships with the other stunt doubles on the crew, uh, and his friendship with Daniel Radcliffe and what that was like for them, and kind of it was also them, his friends and the team on Harry Potter, processing the grief that they had watching their friend go through a different stage of his life and watching their friend go from somebody who was super athletic and super able-bodied and going to be a stuntman and that was his job to then being someone who was totally paralyzed and watching particularly watching Daniel Radcliffe and watching the other stunt men who grew up with him on set kind of learn to see him in this different narrative and learn to see him still as their mate and their friend and they love him but to watch him go through these changes and to see how they manage that was very very interesting for me to watch. Um, I absolutely loved it. I loved it. I just was so floored by it. And I watched it for the first time like four hours ago and I can't get it out of my head. It really made me think about things differently and it really made me consider things differently, my own biases around other disabilities and, and the way that I've talked about certain disabilities, particularly paralysis, made me reconsider all those things. It was just, a, it was just one of my favorite documentaries that I've ever watched on disability, and I'm so excited to bring it to you. Um, so let us watch the trailer for David Holmes, The Boy Who Lived, 
and then we'll get into the dock. Right here on Disability After Dark. Being a stuntman is the best job in the world. You're constantly being tested, just risking it all. I used to fly. Nothing's like it, man. David went in for something, for the sheer fun of it. He had no concepts of fear. I knew I was going to be a stuntman. Then I got the best job in the world. Lead stunt double for Daniel on the Potter films. Dave just seemed like a cool older brother. He would do the most dangerous physical stuff. We would do things no one thought was possible. What was nice about it was that they all grew up together. Ten years on every film. But it was brilliant. Until it wasn't. I remember straight after breaking my neck, I said, there's no chance of coming back. Worst day in the film business that I've ever had. It is unfair. He shouldn't have had to do any of that. In my mind, Dave's indestructible. This terrible thing happened to Dave, but I don't want to talk as if his life is a tragedy. The way his life has affected the lives of people around him means that it is the furthest thing from that imaginable. Three, two, one. Salvation! Before our accident, everything was about being cool and being a stuntman. Hello! Now it's about being present. I have so much love in my life. All I needed is a couple of fans. You got your mum? You know, I had lots of great friends and I'm so lucky. I've had such a crazy life. Such highs and such lows. But I was able to find light in the darkest of places. Wow, even the trailer was really good, and I can tell you the film was even better. So let's uh, get comfy, cozy, and crippled and start the show. All right, so the first the first shots are of David Holmes as a boy on the set of Harry Potter. We hear the voiceover of David Holmes saying that being a stuntman is the best thing in the world. He's talking about how great it is to be a stuntman, how he loves it. He says that in his world, he has to move to think, and that he loves the pressure of something, and to have more pressure on him, the better. And then we hear him say... I used to fly, not so much anymore. And then it pauses for the title card. And as the film opens, we see Daniel Radcliffe going to see David. We see him going to visit him. And you see David coming up to greet him in his power chair in his house. And as a viewer, I love seeing people in power chairs on film as a viewer. It's just something so arresting and important because... We never see it, and so for a split second, it looks, you're like, oh, what's this? It looks, it looks not odd in any way, but just different because we never see it on screen. So I love seeing that, and I always get choked up when I see other power chair users on my screen. And I just think seeing that right away is so important to see in the film. 
And the next shot we see is David's carer helping him get David to go in to the car with Daniel Radcliffe to film some more scenes. And I think seeing this was so important also because to see care actually taking place for real on film is a rare thing. We don't often get to see caregiving happen on film. It's very rare. I've done a few things in my documentary life where I've shown my care a little bit, but it is very rare to see that. Um, and so I really appreciated that was one of the first shots that we saw of David. And so they're in the car and they're driving to the next location. And right away, David tells Daniel, he turns to him and he goes, I get so overstimulated because I don't leave the same four walls a lot. And it just, that made me think about the ways in which disabled people are so, so many of us are isolated. And so, so many of us deal with isolation and don't often leave our places of accessibility and don't often leave our places of comfort. So I really connected with that. And he's like, he says to Daniel, he says, it's like escaping prison to be able to go out and look at every tree and look at every leaf and look at all these things. And I just, I felt so resonant with that because I, I often feel like I don't go out very much. I don't really leave my house a lot too, too much. Everything I do is digital. So I really connected with that. Then we see footage of David in his power chair saying that he has never really told a story because Harry Potter was such a big thing. He didn't want his story to overshadow the story of Harry Potter. And so nobody really knows what happened to him and that it was his time to share his story with the world. And if he didn't do it, nobody would. And I, like I said, I love seeing him in his power chair in the first two minutes of the film. I was crying because... We never really see those things. We never really see or hear the clicks of a power chair on film. And I just, it, it really overwhelmed me when I was watching. And of course, they use plinky plunky music to elicit those feelings. But I, as a disabled watcher, was very invested right away. Because I was like, oh, someone like me, I better pay attention. And then David does a talking head intermixed with home movies from his childhood, where he's running on the beach and where he's playing with his brothers, and then his mom and dad are talking about how everything was fun for David, he was the adventurous one, he was never afraid, he would always do things just for the fun of it, and then David talks about how he would use gymnastics to kind of expel all the energy and all the stress, and from 6 to 18, he was doing gymnastics, and we see footage of him saying that at 11 years old, he knew he wanted to be a stuntman. That's all he wanted to do. All he wanted to do was to be a stunt person. That was like his goal. He says nothing else mattered to him except being a stunt person. And so from then on, every time he went to do gymnastics, he did it with the goal of being a stunt person. Then we have a quick talking head with an older gentleman, Greg Powell, who is the stunt coordinator, or who was the stunt coordinator on all the Potter films, and who would introduce David to the world of being a stunt person. Dave then talks about how he's hooked into stunt work and, and starts going in the, in the industry and doing movies like he was in Lost in Space. He was in that British comedy with Elizabeth Hurley, Bedazzled. He did a lot of stunt work and then eventually he got Potter. 
And as David's talking about all this, they're showing him in his wheelchair doing a talking head of him. And you can see his big wheels and you can see his chair. And even in his, in his talking head, seeing him in his wheelchair, for me as a fellow wheelchair user, felt so important and so rare. And I just, every time I saw him on screen, I brimmed because it was like another version of myself there almost. Another another version of like, oh, somebody who understands my life a little bit. Wow. And then after the talking head, he talks about how he got the lead in the Potter films and how he met Daniel Radcliffe when Daniel Radcliffe was 11 and David Holmes was 14. And the boys built a friendship with one another, a really close friendship. They really, really became very close and they... Um, they were, he was, David was talking about how he watched Daniel Radcliffe grow into the person who he is now and grow into a young man on, on film sets and just how important their friendship was and all the stuff they did together. And watching him talk about their friendship, you could hear in his voice how happy he was and how proud he was of Daniel Radcliffe. And it just was so precious. It was one of my favorite parts of the movie. And then we get to see Daniel Radcliffe talk about how he's he is mostly friends with the crew from Harry Potter. And he talks about how the stunt people on set were some of the funniest, kindest, most important people that he's ever worked with. And he knew that if he would if he went along with the stunt people, he would have a great time and there would be no problem. Then we meet Tolga who is another stunt kid on set, who quickly becomes one of David's friends, and they quickly become this, they form this kind of brotherhood, the three of them. Um, Tolga, Dave, and, and Daniel Radcliffe form a kind of a friendship, the three of them, and so they're always together. And then there's a lot of footage of, the next shot is a lot of footage of Dave in Harry Potter, and doing scenes about Harry Potter, and talking about like what it was like to do stunt work on Harry Potter and Daniel Radcliffe talking about how so many of the stunts they did on Potter were done by Dave first and Dave showing Daniel how to do it so he was safe and Dave really taking Daniel under his wing so that he was safe and so that it was totally done properly and so that it was done with care and Daniel Radcliffe saying, you know, Dave did so much for me to make sure that I was prepared to do these stunts as a 10 and 11 year old kid. He really made sure that I was okay. And then we meet some of the other people who do stunts with Dave. One of the other stuntmen named Mark, who, who was a friend of, who was a friend, I think, of Dave when they went out partying. He was a friend of his, Mark. And then Dave saw how talented Mark was. And he said, you really should consider becoming a stunt person. You're really good at this. Why don't I introduce you to like some studio people and we'll see what happens. And you can see how the you can tell right away the kind of person that Dave is, what a kind, sweet person he is. And he's trying to get all his friends to do cool things and show them how talented they are. And he just, you can tell that he pulls people in to his orbit and makes them feel awesome when he does that. From here, Dave talks about how he always wanted to do the dangerous stunts, how he was always the one that wanted to push the limits, push the boundaries, do 
the tough thing, do the scary thing, and not worry about it. He was always the one that wanted to do it. He wanted to be faster, stronger, louder, quicker, all those things in terms of stunts. He was the one that wanted to do it. Throughout the film, they they talked about each other a little bit like brothers. There's this feeling like they were brothers, and that's really, really sweet. And they both talk about each other a lot in the first, like, 20 minutes of the film. And then Daniel talks about traveling with Mark and David to New York together. When the films were getting big, they traveled to New York. And when they went to New York, because, because Dave and Mark were stuntmen... Dave and Mark did like flagpoles off a lamppost and all these crazy sun things. And they were just friends basking in their other friends' newfound stardom and this big thing that nobody was quite ready for. Or nobody would knew knew how this would turn out, or nobody knew how this would go. Um And you can tell at this point that the film is leading up to talk about the dark thing because, because they're talking to one of them and they say Oh, it was great. It was good until it wasn't good anymore. And then someone else says, it went from a dream to a nightmare. So you can tell they're leading in to talk about something kind of dark. And then they do exactly that. So then the next scene is Dave talks about a stunt they were doing where Dave is on a pulley system and has to be flung back with a bunch of weight on him. And when they fling him back really fast and then... And then he does the stunt, but when he did it, Dave realized that they all kind of sensed that maybe the weight was too much for him, maybe it was dangerous, but Dave said, no, 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 it's my stunt, I'm going to do it, this is what I want to do, this is my thing, let me do it. So they put, him in the, they put him in the apparatus, they go to pull the thing, and right when they did it, Dave knew something was wrong. He could feel something go, and he was like, I felt my, my neck go to my chest and my nose go to my chest and I felt something was wrong. I knew right away something was not okay. And he talks about how during the accident, he was fully conscious during this. Throughout the whole thing, he knew what was happening. He was there. He understood what was going on. He he could talk and communicate, which I can imagine is really terrifying if you go from being completely able-bodied to non-disabled. And as that's happening to you, as you're losing function and your whole world is changing, you're completely conscious. I can't imagine that would be very, um, that would be very easy to handle. And he talks about how he knew exactly what was going on and how it was hard for him. And then his friends, Mark and Daniel, talk about the accident and talk about what happened. And you can see in one talking head with his friend, Mark, one of the stuntmen, you can see him struggling to talk about it without crying and you can see him get really emotional and you can see them you can see that he's feeling upset watching their friend go from quote-unquote normal to not normal anymore and the grief his friend's grief is so palpable and so real in those moments and I think that that was a really important part of the film for me watching I really liked that part of the film because I think we need more places to explore grief, especially grief around losing function as a disabled person. We need more places to have non-disabled people who watch their friends become disabled. 
explore and talk about that grief and anger. And I don't think we do that enough. And so watching them finally have a place where they could really express how it really made them feel openly on camera. I mean, they tried to hold it together for their friend, but you could see just how angry they were that their friend had to go through any of this. And then this is something their friend had to endure. You can see that it really affected them. And it was really powerful to see these non-disabled folks who don't who don't fully understand what it is that Dave is going through, but love him and care about him and want him to be okay. Hearing them talk about wanting their friend to be okay was really hard, but such a necessary thing to see. And a necessary thing. And I'm so proud that they put that on film because we never see that. We never get to see how your friend feels about you being disabled or becoming disabled. And this is an important thing for audiences to see, I think. And then the next talking head is his mom talking to the audience about hearing what happened to her child and hearing that she had to go to the hospital and she knew right away something was wrong and she wanted to make sure he was okay right away. And she knew that, that something was very, very wrong. And you can tell that she is just grief-stricken. She says something like, I think she says in The Talking Head, I knew, I knew that something really drastic had happened, and I sat, I sat up in that room with him, and I cried all night because I'm the one that's supposed to put the plaster on it and fix it, and I couldn't fix it. And when she said that, I literally started to cry because I can't imagine what a parent would feel watching their child experience becoming disabled just like that. It must be really, really hard. And his parents are, they didn't interview them too much in the film because it, it centered on Dave, but his parents, you can tell they're very strong people. They're very, you can tell they're very good people. And they went through hell and back. And I, I wanted to sit with them for another hour and hear what it was like for his parents to experience that. I think along with having more spaces for friends of disabled people who become disabled needing to explore their grief, I would love to hear, and I know some people are going to be like, no, the only space is for disabled folks, but I would love to hear more spaces for non, for parents of disabled folks who became disabled quickly or not so quickly for parents of disabled folks who became disabled, what is their grief like? What does that feel like? And how do we talk about it? And I would love for those spaces to be more transparent. But his parents are, you can tell, they're very strong people. And I, I every time his mom and dad were on screen, I, I just wanted to hear more from them. Then... Dave talks about what it was like when he woke up from his first surgery after he got to the hospital, and he recounts that when he woke up and saw everybody around him who he loved, his very first thought was, I wish I didn't have to put you through this. I wish that you didn't have to go through this. He wasn't worried about himself. He was worried about how what happened to him would affect the people that he loves. And when he said this in the film, it connected with me so much. That feeling is so, so real. I, as a disabled person born with disabilities, constantly worry how my disability 
or when I'm sick in the hospital because of disability? How is all that affecting the people that I love and care about? How is it weighing on them that I am disabled, that I need help, that I need care? How are they managing all those things with me? I always worry and think that if I was able-bodied, if I had come out of my mom's tummy able-bodied, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't make anybody go through all the stuff they have to go through, managing my care, you know, finding accessibility for me, building a house just for me, all those things. I think about that all the time. And so I really, really was quite, I, so much of what David said made an impact on me in this film. So much of what he said had had such such a profound impact on me. And then the next talking head is Daniel Radcliffe um, talking about after he found out that David was in an accident, he was like, well, as soon as I as soon as I get off the plane, I'm coming to the hospital to be with you. I, don't worry, I'll be right there. And he was very, very insistent that he would be, you know, with his friend. And that's great. But he also said something that I think is really, really important. And he said, you know, I was so afraid that seeing him like this would be awkward because it is awkward. He says in his talking head, it is awkward. It is really hard to see him like this. And Daniel Radcliffe worried that will it be normal between the two of them again? Well, they still have that brothership they have, or that brotherhood they've maintained. Um, and I think that his saying this is such a real, valid feeling that a lot of non-disabled people who experience somebody with a disability that they love going through disability for the first time, or becoming sick, or whatever the case may be, or losing function, I feel like they probably have a lot of feelings about this normality, but they don't want to talk about it because they don't want to make their friend or their loved one feel less than. So to hear Daniel Radcliffe and someone of his, of his, um, someone of his caliber say, this is what I was thinking about and this is how it made me feel, is so, was so really, really important to watch. And I think watching someone as famous as Daniel Radcliffe talk about his friend becoming disabled and seeing Daniel Radcliffe struggle with the grief of his friend becoming disabled is important to see on camera, if only because we never really see that side of it. We never see the ripple effects of an accident like that. We never see the ripple effects of disability coming into all of their lives at once. We never see that. And so I was really, I was really grateful to see that part of the film too. And to see those emotions so readily talked about. It also made me really appreciate Daniel Radcliffe more. You can tell he's a really down to earth person who just who just wants to do good work and wants to have good mates and wants to have good friends. And you can tell that he really cares. And you can tell that he wants to be in David's life and he wants to be there as he can. And I think, you know, so many people in, in the celebrity sphere, especially the one like Daniel Radcliffe was in, don't 
seemed to have that same heart that he does. And he just seemed, and again, I don't know him at all, but he seemed very, very genuine. And I really connected with that. Dave says, and he says that he told all his friends and he told his family something really important. He says, try and hope for me to be happy like I am. Not happy like you want me to be, but happy as I am. And woo, that, that kind of immediate acceptance of trying to just get on with it and get on with his life, regardless of what happened. And that immediately like snapped to to positivity. That was really an important point, but also probably really hard. I know when I have to deal with things around my disability, it's really hard to go to a place where you're okay. So I imagine for David, it took time to get to a place where he was comfortable being okay with it. And I commend him for choosing to have such a positive spirit and to be so like, this is who I am now. Please accept me for who I am as a disabled person. It was just so honest and real because I think more of us should be saying that and more of us in disability spaces should be telling our friends, you know, please, please accept me as I am now, not something you want me to be, but as I am. And that was, it was really, 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 really cool to hear him say that. Then there's a clip, one of my favorite clips in the movie that just made me laugh so much. There's an old clip when Dave was in the hospital with Daniel Radcliffe and, a, and one of their girlfriends or friends, and they were playing Chubby Bunny, you know, the game where you put um, marshmallows in your mouth and you try to say see how many times you can say Chubby Bunny. So they were, they were playing that game and they were putting marshmallows in their mouth and it was just a really cute moment of people being there for their friend and trying to find the, the light in the darkness and it was just really really sweet it was really really cute to watch that and it had nothing to do with disability so much it was just moments of them having joy together and we i think watching that we need more moments of dis of disabled people on film just having a laugh just finding joy and to see this little moment in the film with the famous Daniel Radcliffe there, just being a kid with his friend playing Chubby Bunny, was so cool. It was just so cool and so nice to see. And then at one point, um, one of the one of his family or friends says, when Dave was in the hospital, he realized there were other people that had different disabilities than him and then some folks in rehab that that had more needs than he did what they say in the film is oh he realizes there were some people that were more, more worse off than he was and dave understood that he had to go look out for those people and he had to look out for them to make sure they were okay and the first time i watched that clip i burst into tears because we all need disabled people to look out for each other. We all need disabled people who have di different disabilities to watch out for us and make sure we're doing okay and make sure we're all right. And I really like that he is using his experience as a disabled man to make sure other disabled people are okay. 
too. Even the hospital. Like, that's really cool. He could have resented them. He could have been very angry at them. But he was like, no, I want to make sure you're okay. That's pretty awesome. And that just speaks to the kind of person that he is. And then we get another talking head with Dave's mother, who talks about how angry and how bitter she was that this happened to her son. Of course she was. And she wanted to hold the people that were responsible were responsible for this and involved in this accident to her son. She wanted to hold them to account. But Dave told her, my life is ruined. Why would I want to ruin someone else's life? That quote is a deep cut. That quote cut me when I heard it the first time. I personally don't think David's life is ruined. I think that he is a disabled man, can and is having a great life. And I'm sure that neither does he feel like his life is ruined, but I'm sure there are moments where the grief of being disabled, and as disabled as he is, the grief in them saying my life is ruined, I can totally understand why he would say that, especially if he was in the hospital recovering. I totally get that. I know we talk about toxic positivity a lot in the disability space, but I really resonate with this. At one point in the film, Dave says, I really shy away from the negative and work on being positive. Now, initially, when I first watched, I thought, oh no, he's going to veer into toxic positivity. But then I thought about it some more, and I thought about what he was saying, and I thought, if I went through something that traumatic and that upsetting and that life-changing in a split second, wouldn't I want and need that positivity around myself? Wouldn't I want to find the joy in the little moments and to push the negative away every chance I got? Of course I would. So it made me rethink some things about the way we talk about positivity in the disability space. I think that we can still talk about negativity too, but I think in Dave's case, the positivity was a lifesaver. Then Dave tells us that the studio stepped up to ensure that he would that Dave would be provided for after his accident, as they should. And he talks about just how lucky he was to have everything in place so that he was taken care of. And then we see David in the hospital showing the home video of how he transfers or would self-transfer from his hospital bed to his wheelchair. And he does it quite easily and he explains what he's doing. And you see him touches touch his knees to his chest as best he can and slide himself on a, on a sliding transfer mat over into the wheelchair. And for many of us with disabilities, that seems like nothing. But for a lot of us who don't understand um, who don't understand how these things go, it was really important to see. And then Dave says, just as he was about to be discharged from the hospital, after being there for months, he got what's known as a spinal syrinx, which is a cyst on the spinal cord. And he said that when he realized that he had to be rushed to surgery and he had to spend another two months in hospital recovering. 
And I think people who aren't disabled don't understand what those setbacks can feel like and how scary it can be to deal with them. When I was 16, I don't know if I've said this before on the show, but I'll say it again. When I was 16, I had spinal fusion surgery and I got, I finished the surgery and I got infected. I got a hematoma and all through my first hospital stay, the doctors were like, the hematoma is going to go down. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And then, and then I went home and I was home for about a week. And then after one night, I wasn't feeling good. And one morning when my mom came in to check on me, this, the hematoma had burst and we had to be rushed into the hospital and I had to be, had to have three surgeries over the course of one weekend and be in the hospital again for another couple of weeks. And I don't think people understand how hard it is to deal with those setbacks and how tough they can be emotionally. I was so emotionally drained when I found out that I would be in the hospital again after telling me that, after them telling me I would be okay and then all of a sudden I wasn't okay. And then the doctor says to me, oh yeah, you're one of 1% of people that gets this infection. Well, David had the same thing. He was like, I was one of 1% of people that gets a spinal pharynx that had to be operated on or, or he would die. Um, and I just, as somebody who's been through multiple surgeries for my disability, I totally, totally related to that one. And then there's a talking head of the stunt coordinator, Greg Powell, saying that he saw Dave in a Hoyer lift for the first time in the hospital and talking about how horrible and awful it was for him to see him in that state. You can feel that Greg Powell is completely overcome with grief in this interview because he was the one that was supposed to protect him as a stunt coordinator on Harry Potter, and you know that he feels the most responsible for what happened to Dave. And then we hear one of the talking heads, I think it's with Daniel Radcliffe, was talking about how Dave wanted only Mark, one of the other stunt guys, to step into the role of Harry Potter's stunt double, but Mark feels bad because Dave isn't there and he should be the one doing it and he doesn't want to take a job away from his friend and his friend should be there and he's not there and you can see they talk to Mark in the in the talking head and he gets so upset because you can see like he shouldn't be there, his friend should be there, but he had to do it. Um, and you can see that they're both struggling with their grief around having to have someone they have on set all day, usually, not be there anymore and having to step into a role that should be their friends, but had it untimely taken away from him because of an accident. And then Daniel Radcliffe in The Talking Head talks about what... David Holmes has taught him as his friend and he said you know David has taught me how to be present has taught me how to know that every moment can be random and fleeting so you better grab onto it now you better you better embrace it now and he's taught me to just live in the moment and be present and I know that when we think about disability we don't often want to be referred to as someone's teachable moment and I understand that but I think there is some value in looking at a moment like this and seeing the impact that a disabled person can have on people. I think it's important that we we acknowledge the impact that we as disabled people can have on someone else's life in making them reconsider 
parts of their own life and, and making them think about slowing down and being more involved in the little moments, I think that's a really important skill that a lot of disabled folks bring to the table. And I think it's really cool that Daniel Radcliffe has a friend that can teach him that and remind him of that when things in his industry are crazy, crazy, go, go, go. He can take a moment and just breathe and relax for his friend Dave. Dave talks about something that is really important. He says, you know, initially after the accident, I wanted to get back what I had lost. I wanted to go, go, go. I wanted to be exactly in the same place that I was. And he learned that it wasn't about being in the same place where he was or any of that. It was learning that he had to accept where he is. And he had to accept what his disability had taken away from him, but also the perspective that his disability brought to him. And I can only imagine going through something like that must be really hard and must be really tough to navigate constantly. And it, it's a push and pull, I'm sure. But I'm, I'm really happy that Dave said that truth because I think that for a lot of people who lose function, not just people who become paralyzed, but people who lose function, want to have back what they had immediately. And sometimes having to let that go and let the the kind of desire for what you had before go and, and lean into something new doesn't feel good, but it's necessary. So I'm glad he's, I'm glad David said that. And then one of my favorite parts of the film is we see David and his relationship with his best friend and his carer, Tommy, again. And he shares how important the bond between carer and friend is. And then David's mom talks about, and she says in her talking head, she says, how many other men would choose to be a carer for their friend? How many other men would do that? And I think there is not a truer statement spoken. So much of caregiving is considered to be a female-driven and female-dominated um, industry. And so many men and guys have the, have trouble with the issue of and the idea of caregiving and the idea of giving yourself selflessly to someone else for a moment. And so to see Tommy and David be together, being mates, being friends, and doing all these things, they, you see them traveling everywhere, see them doing all this stuff and talking about the ups and downs of that and just being mates but going through all this thing together, it's really nice to hear that. And it's almost never, ever seen in documentary style or in a scripted film. We never really see it. We saw it in um, The Fundamentals of Caring a little bit, but but not, and maybe a little bit in, um, in The Upside a little bit. But really, caregiving is not really discussed on film. So this was, this was really nice. Tommy says that it's not his responsibility to take care of David. It's his best friend. He says, we do some fun things and we do some horrible things. And I love this line that he says because caregiving, that's truly the way caregiving is sometimes. Sometimes you do great fun stuff and sometimes you do really shitty, no pun intended, really shitty, horrible things. And we need to look, we need more people to look at at 
caregiving as the opportunity that it is rather than just a responsibility. And hearing that from Tommy on the film was a very necessary learning point for me. Seeing that it isn't, it shouldn't just be a responsibility, this cold job responsibility. It should be an opportunity to learn, to meet somebody, to show them some compassion, to show them some help, to laugh with them while you give them help. It's important, and it's very rarely shown in the caregiving space. Then David says, I'm going to try to live every day the way it is, and I'm going to try to live every day striving for those little glimpses, you know? And I think his attitude is so honest and doesn't shy away from the fact that there will be hard times, but actively recognizes that he must try to find joy as a disabled man. And he talks about how when he before his accident it was about the money, being cool, doing all doing good, all those things, all this stuff, success, blah blah blah. But now it's just about being present. Just about being in the moment. And sometimes the moment is shit. But it's about being in that moment right now. And I think we could all use that as a reminder. Then there's a scene of David getting up with all his equipment, getting out of his bed. So they, they do a shot of his tablet, his shower commode, being woken up by Tommy, the attendant. We see a scene of him in the shower, you know, just doing daily things. And I think these are such necessary scenes for an audience to understand, but especially for disabled audience members to connect with. Because we see a version of ourselves in that. And it feels comforting to see things that we know in our daily lives on screen. At one point, Daniel Radcliffe calls him the brother that he always wanted. And to see Daniel Radcliffe just be a person and a friend with his friend is just really sweet. It's it, it You do have a moment of like, oh, they're so sweet together because they really are. And I think in part, the disability, the disability experience helped with that a little bit. I could be wrong, but I think I think seeing his friend like this made Daniel take a moment to just be himself and less the less the 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 celebrity of Daniel Radcliffe and just a person and there's something important about that. And I think disability is a really good kind of way of humbling people a little bit to be like, oh be a person with me. Just be yourself. The next scene, Dave takes Daniel to his old stomping grounds, South Essex Gymnastics Clubs, with Dan. They go together, and they and David and Dan give a talk about what it was like for David as a stunt person and what it was like for them to work together. And I really like seeing him teach the kids and talk about what he used to do and talk about his experiences and talk about all that. I think it was really, really cool to see that and you can see the kids are really excited to see you know Harry Potter's in the room but also they're really they're they're engaged with David too and then Dave talks in the next scene about how disability is a mental test that his spasms hurt 
all the time, that he has bad pain days, that he doesn't feel very good. And yep, I'm sure that so many of you listening can relate to what it's like to having a bad pain day or what it's like to not feel good or have a tough spasm day or you're just hurting on a day. I think all of us with disabilities can really, really relate to that. He says, Paralysis is like a prison cell, and then sometimes he feels stuck in a coffin. Now, my disability is completely different. I have cerebral palsy. I was born that way. So I cannot speak to what that's like, but if he's saying that, it's true. If he's saying sometimes he feels like he's stuck in a coffin, that's true. If he's saying sometimes he feels like he's stuck in a prison cell of paralysis, that's real. Then we have a talking head of Daniel Radcliffe saying that after the accident, everybody thought that, that the way he was was the worst of it, and this is how he's going to be now. But Daniel Radcliffe lets us know that, no, this paralysis is the gift that keeps on taking, as Dave talks, as, as Dave says all the time. And Dave talks about his loss of function and what that feels like, and he's done so many different things to try to keep his function. And he talks about, you know, being afraid to, to, you know, is this the last time I'm going to be able to pet the dog? Is this the last time I'm going to be able to, to feed myself or drink something? And I can't imagine what that feels like to know that, they, well, I mean, I can imagine on a different scale. I, the last time I went PMM was about seven years ago. Not the same thing, but I certainly lost function. And it's harder now to pee. So I understand that part of it a little bit. And I understand the fear and anger and the grief that I know he feels. He says, going to bed, worrying that I'll wake up, unable to move more when I wake up. So he'll go to sleep and he'll be able to move something. And then he'll wake up and he won't be able to move it anymore. That's got to be really hard to, to go to bed knowing that you might lose another vital part of your functioning. What if he went to bed when he stopped breathing? That's got to be scary. And that's got to weigh on him, quite literally. And then there's another cl clip of him saying, I don't want to live on painkillers. I don't want to always be taking painkillers. He says that people always tell him to take painkillers, to take the pain away. And he says, I want to get up and feel the pain before I lose the the chance to feel it at all. And that was such a profound thing to say. And this is, this is the part in the documentary where I think that my own views on, on paralysis changed. I'll, I'll, I'll make this a bit more personal. This past week I did a, I was doing my daily social media stuff and I've been talking to people about how I was talking about how paralysis is not the only way that we can become disabled. And I was really getting at how the media talks to, you know, only sees paralysis one way, but I didn't say that. I just said paralysis is not the only way to be disabled. And watching this film made me realize what a shitty thing I said was. I don't understand what paralysis is. I don't understand the ins and outs of that. And hearing him talk about it's not just you become paralyzed and then that's it. There's so many more parts of it that people don't talk about. It's the gift that keeps on taking. 
to hear him say that made me kind of go, oh, fuck, what a shitty thing I wrote on social media. So I'm learning that, and I'm so thankful for David in the film sharing that because I had friends with paralysis, and I never considered the reality of their experience. I'm so glad that he talked about it's not just becoming paralyzed, paralyzed, not a word, becoming paralyzed, and that's it. There's so much more to it. And then we see Daniel Radcliffe. The next scene is we see Daniel Radcliffe talking about watching his friend David lose function, and we, we hear him say, I worry for him a lot. I worry for him all the time. And I think it's really important to see his friends process their own fear about what their friend is going through. I really, really appreciated that part of the film. I think about my friend, Anthony McAuliffe, who passed in... who passed in 2022... He passed in 22, and he had spinal muscular atrophy, but he would lose function. I remember when he couldn't eat anymore, and he had trouble swallowing, and he couldn't chew anymore, and he had trouble lifting his fingers. I remember watching that happen to him when we were friends in college, and I didn't think anything of it at the time, but looking back on it, it must have been so fucking hard for him. And... I was too young and self-involved at the time to worry about it, but if that was happening to a friend now, I would worry about it so much. The next scene, we watch Dave go through multiple surgeries in a short amount of time. We watch him try and be okay with these surgeries, but you can tell the grief and, and continuous turbulence on his body is scary, even to watch as a viewer. And, and at this point, his mom says something like, we thought at Christmas we would lose him. We thought at Christmas it would be over, but he pulled through. And then we watch as Dave goes into the hospital and is tested by a nurse to see how much he can feel and if he's losing more and more function. And I can't imagine for him how nerve-wracking that must be to be like, oh, what about, what can't I feel? What is this going to mean for my life? What is this going to mean? And when he's in the hospital there, he comforts one of the nurses during COVID. And he says, did you lose anybody during COVID? And the nurse says, oh, yeah, I did, my best friend. And he goes, oh, shit, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And they chat for a minute. And he goes, did you want a vacation? Did you want to come and see me sometime? And he spends his time comforting the nurses that are taking care of him. And you can just tell the guy has a beautiful soul because he wants them to be okay. He's not concerned about himself. He wants them to be all right. And then they do a scene where he's going back to the hospital where he was. And he talks about when he was in the room recovering, recovering how exposed he was to disability, to vulnerability, to his body, all those things. And But he talks about, you know, my friends got me through. He talked about seeing one of the stuntmen friends get engaged, seeing Chubby Bunny with Daniel Radcliffe made him laugh. All these things helped him find the light in his day as a disabled person. And I need to, I really need to do more of that. I really need to find my own light sometimes because I get really down in the, in the doldrums about disabilities, disability at moments. And I like 
kind of mining disability grief and talking about it, but I do need to find the light. And the, it really resonated with me when he said that. Then we see all of the friends, Dave and the stunt guys, sitting there having a laugh with Daniel Radcliffe, just sitting with Dave laughing. Dave's in his wheelchair, and they're all in a circle just chatting. And there's one part of that scene, a really quick part, where you see da where you see Daniel Radcliffe give give Dave a drink, and put it to his mouth, and they and he drinks it, and it's really quick, and you can't catch it. But I caught it, and I was like, oh, that's really that's just really great that he's not scared to help him. That they're friends, whatever, no big deal. That was one of my favorite parts of the movie. And then they're talking, and Dave says to his friends, you know, I have stagnated in life with a lot of things because of my disability. And I really resonate with that, with what he was saying. I often feel like my life is on hold or is kind of not really working because I can't do certain things, because I haven't had certain experiences, because I haven't done different things. I often feel like my life is stalled and stagnated. And it's, and then we hear his friend say, you know, when you got in the accident and you couldn't be there for Harry Potter and all these things, we were more angry than you were. We were angry. And then at one point he says, you know, got, you know, you're my, my mate, so I can tell you this, but we have to accept that Things are going to get worse, and I don't know what that's going to be, but we're going to have to accept that things are going to be different eventually. And I can only say that because I'm friends with you a lot. And it was really powerful and equally scary to see him be so vulnerable with his mates and say, like, I don't know what's happening next, but I want you to be with me through that journey. David knows that it won't be easy for his friends to see him like that, but he will still be himself. And that's what he says when they're talking in the room together. He says, I know it's going to be different, but that's okay. I'm still going to be who I am up until the end. Because of what happened to David Holmes, his friends that do stunt work, Mark and Tolga, the other, the other, his other stunt mates have decided to, you know, work on making sure that every stunt is safe from now on and doing what they can to ensure that everybody's safe on film and that this kind of stuff that have another friend doesn't happen to someone else. They've really taken an initiative to make sure that that's okay. Um, I looked for stunt accident stats in the UK, couldn't find anything. Um, I'll have to circle back around on that. Um, and so David, then it shows David at a, at a cricket tournament because he's been raising money with a cricket tournament to help to help the hospital where he was taken care of um, raise money for spinal cord injury and spinal cord research. And then we have another talking head with Greg Powell, the Harry Potter stunt coordinator, who is really grief-stricken and really upset. And he talks about how much he hates seeing David like this. And he hates seeing him... And he just goes on and on. His his whole way of being in this documentary was just grief. He was just sad because he knew that he felt responsible. And I just, I just felt so sad for him because I wanted to give him a hug and be like, it's okay that you're upset about this, but can we find a way for you to move past it so that you're all right? And because, you know, you can see when they're together, you can see that David 
wants a relationship with Greg, and he wants the same relationship they had before. But you can tell that things have changed. And one of the things he says in the film, Greg says in the film is, in the nicest way, I wish I never met him when I see him like that. Because if I didn't meet him, he wouldn't be like that if he hadn't met me. And that's just heartbreaking. That's just heartbreaking. Greg also says he could be doing anything now. He could be doing whatever he wanted to now, but I fucked his life up. Look what I did. Look what I did to him. And when I watched this part of the scene, I just wanted to give this man a big hug and remind him that David is still here right now. And even though he had an accident, he still has a good life. Then there are shots of, of, Dave, of David going on safari and having a laugh and doing all these things as a disabled man. And it was, I just wanted to tell Greg, it's okay that you're upset, but you can let some of that go now. And there's a scene where David sits with, with Greg and tries to explain to him that he understood the risks he took as a stunt person and there needs to be a positive outcome in his life or he, he can't do it. He can't. He needs to find the positive or he can't do it. He's trying to nudge Greg into, let's find a good outcome because I can't take the negativity. And I understand that. One of the things David says is, I'm having a unique journey on this planet. It's my journey, but it's a unique journey. And at one point, they're sitting and laughing, and I can't remember what he says, but it was really funny. He just goes, I'll try and shit myself for you by, by the end of the night, and they all have a laugh. And I think it's funny how he's just playing with the truth of his disability, the truth of his what it is, and I just laugh because sometimes I try and shit myself at night with my IBS and all the stuff that I live with. So I like that he said that on film, and I like that, that was there. And then we have another talking head of Daniel Radcliffe, who says that he doesn't want his his friend's life to be viewed as a tragedy. He doesn't want people to see David Holmes' accident as a tragedy. He wants people to know that it was fucking unfair what happened to his friend. But it's not a tragedy, and I, I, I kind of like that view of it. It's fucking unfair, and you can grieve it, but it's not a tragedy. I think that's a really good way to go. And then the very last scene, they go to one of the old Harry Potter warehouses in the UK, and they look at old props and clothes, and they put on a, a sorting hat from, from one of the prop cupboards, and... So for some reason the back car is there and they like laugh about that together and Daniel Radcliffe says Dave is one of the few people that Daniel Radcliffe can think fondly of on Potter and can think like you made this experience good for me and Daniel Radcliffe says we can acknowledge that Harry Potter was a great thing and it brought us all together but also this horrible thing happened on Potter and that's okay too and I think that's important. When something like this happens and somebody becomes dis disabled like that, you can't forget the good moments from this from their life. It can't all be tragic. It can't be. But it's okay to acknowledge that sometimes terrible things happen. And then the very last scene is 
um, they're walking away together and David says to Daniel, don't ever fucking get out of this industry. And, and Daniel says, don't worry, I won't, mate. Don't worry, I won't. And the la one of the last things that David says is, if my legs come back tomorrow, I go back to work. And that's it. This, the movie ends. Okay, so let me rate this Popcorn and Power Chairs. I gotta give it a 5 out of 5. I fell in love with David Holmes as a character. I thought seeing um, Daniel Radcliffe show vulnerability about his friend and just be a person with his friend was really cool. I thought showing the caregiving parts was necessary. I thought talking about the grief of all the things that happened was necessary. It was just really... It was a documentary that I can't stop thinking about. I've watched it now twice today to record this this episode i just five out of five and if you can get it on hbo or hbo max or wherever it's streaming i highly recommend it i couldn't speak any more highly of it it was such an important piece of disability film and just film in general i really really i really really enjoyed it really really liked it it touched on a lot of important themes in in an hour and a half but i really loved it and i highly recommend it as a, a good piece of Popcorn and power chair cinema. So, five power chairs out of five power chairs. Five out of five, for sure. And I have a little exciting bit of news for you. This is this will be episode 343, part one, because as I was watching the film for preparation today, I noticed during the film that David Holmes had an Instagram. So I just thought, all right, well, I'm going to just shoot my shot. And I DM'd David Holmes and said, I'm watching The Boy Who Lived Right Now. I would love to invite you on Disability After Dark to talk about the film, talk about your experiences on Potter, talk about whatever you'd like, really. I'd be honored to have you. And I thought, oh, he's not going to get back to me. He's, you know, a, he's, you know, busy with his life and he's a big person now and he won't get back to me. And within... I think about an hour or so I had a DM from him saying that he wants to he wants to come on so I'm going to meet the subject of this documentary. We're going to record an episode in the new year. So that is so cool and stay tuned for that. I cannot wait to bring him on so we can talk about all things in the documentary and his experiences of disability right from his mouth. Amazing. Amazing. Um so I really hope you enjoyed this watch of The Boy Who Lived. It's available on HBO Max. Um, and you should all stream it. And next week, we're going to do... I think we're going to do a classic-type Disability After Dark episode. I think I said we're going to do, like, the sexiest winter dates or something and see if they're accessible. Something like that. That's that's my plan. But uh, thanks for coming to 343. Here's the outro. Bye, friends. Bye.
Alright friends, well there goes another episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories with me, your host, Andrew Gerza. If you want to follow my work, you can head over to my social media, AndrewGerza6 on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, although I never use it. If you want to follow my website and find out about my speaking opportunities, my gigs, and ways to have me come to your event, go to www.andrewgerza.com. If you want to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark and you can get the show days early, completely ad-free, and a shout-out on the air. So if you want to support the show, you're able to do that. And please, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. It really does help shows like this about disability, which are very rare, get supported. Thank you so much for being with us and stay comfy, cozy, and crippled. Until next time, bye. Copyright notice. Disability After Dark was created, recorded, and produced by Cripple & Co. Productions and Andrew Gerza. Any and all use of materials, graphics, audio recordings, etc. cannot be used or distributed without express permission. If you would like to use an episode of the podcast or license an episode of the podcast on your website, please consider emailing Andrew Gerza and Crippling Co. Productions at disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com. Copyright 2023.